Welcome to Healthcare Beat, a healthcare podcast brought to you by Seifarth Shaw's cross-disciplinary healthcare team. Each beat will focus on key industry trends and the latest developments while identifying practical takeaways for those in this space. I'm Adam Lawton, partner in Seifarth's corporate department and host of Healthcare Beat. Let's jump in. Today, we're going to take a look at mergers and acquisitions in the healthcare industry from the point of view of you know what we'll call the midpoint of 2021, maybe coming out of the pandemic or moving into the next phase of the pandemic and how that has changed and evolved during the past year. I'm joined today by Susie Saxman, a partner in Seifarth's corporate group in our Chicago office, and she is the head of the mergers and acquisitions practice group at Seifarth. So welcome, Susie. Thanks, Adam. So Susie, let's start with just a high-level overview of the healthcare industry, and, and where is that right now? Well, Adam, healthcare is a huge part of the U.S. economy. It's one of the largest sectors. Recent statistics suggest that the healthcare spending generally in the United States is, at least back as far as 2019, it was 18% of our gross domestic product with, at that time, a projected 5% annual growth. And of course, in 2020, we did see a slight dip. We think there were some care that was postponed during the pandemic, but a rebound is expected. Again, we expect the sector to be not only one of the largest, but a growing sector. And just for background purposes, when we talk about mergers and acquisitions in the healthcare industry, what are the types of deals that we're talking about? Adam, when you say healthcare M&A, it really is a vast number of what I'll call sub-industries. Let me just give you kind of the top level. Obviously, there are facilities. That's something we can all relate to, assisted and long-term care, hospitals, rehab, surgery centers. But then there's the whole category of services. That would be things like clinical labs, diagnostics, dialysis, home health. And of course, a big area is technology, healthcare technologies. Telehealth has been huge. That's really emerged during the time of the pandemic, too. And then there's an entire category that seems a little bit different, life sciences. So think big pharma, contract research, manufacturing. There's the whole pharmacy sector. And then we've got medical devices and products, supplies and distributions. And then finally, looking at managed care, you know, these are the consumer, government, or payer plans, and physician staffing, which is a huge area of interest in healthcare M&A. So those are about the, you know, the broad stroke of some of the verticals in healthcare M&A. And are there any particular areas that are growing in importance or a growing trend in the types of deals you're seeing? Yeah, I think if you look at the industry in the United States, wellness and consumer behavioral tools are on on an upward trajectory. There's quite a lot of healthcare IT growth. So, for example, think about just promoting care management in alternative sites. I mean, telehealth has been huge. If you look at telehealth, it may be that, you know, a couple of years ago, you would get on telehealth for, you know, a child's ear infection. But if you look at the last year, for example, behavioral sciences, therapy, other sorts of well-being and social outreach has been done. It's been facilitated by healthcare IT. So that's been a growth area. There's been some virtualization of clinical trials. Biopharma has certainly been, you know, very much into contract research and manufacturing organizations. And then there's a lot of continued consolidation that we're seeing 
really very much a, you know, a, re, a product of the healthcare M&A, behavioral health, vet med, physical therapy, retail health. Think about all the outlets that are now where you might go to get your day-to-day healthcare treatments. It's not just going to the doctor's office or, God forbid, you know, ending up at a hospital. And in terms of deal trends, types of deals, size of deals, what kind of trends are you seeing in that area? Well, some of the recent statistics I looked at for 2021, Q1 for reported deals, 611 deals were announced. And then Q2 of 21, 573 deals were announced. Slight decline in the number of deals, but the dollar volume of these deals has still been high. And the dollar volume of healthcare M&A deals has doubled or more over the volume that we were seeing in dollars in 2020. And this is, these are some of the statistics that are being reported by the folks that monitor the industry. You know, it's interesting of those deals announced in healthcare just during 2021, very interesting, over 100 are in long-term care and then over 100 are in physician medical groups. So those two verticals lead the category in the sheer volume of deals. And one of the things that we saw, I think some of this was influenced by the pandemic, as soon as the long-term care occupancy plummeted, there's some evidence that there was an increase immediately on the heels of that to consolidate in the long-term care category. Private equity has been very strong from a buy side in both the physician market and long-term care. And we're still seeing good strengths by strategic buyers. Home health and hospice, for example, two things that continued really unabated, maybe challenged, but you know, still fairly robust needs for home health and hospice during the time of the pandemic. So one of the things that I thought was interesting is that over the course of last year, PE volume rose and has been so robust in 2021 that literally the volume of M&A driven by private equity buyers, these are financial investors who their business is M&A, they're representing just very slightly under 50% of the deal volume. There's a lot of interest by private equity investors in this sector. You know, funds are still very cheap to borrow. There's a lot of money on tap in private equity funds, and so it's, it's interesting to see just how active they have been. You know, the strategic side of it, this is, you know, actual operating healthcare businesses as buyers. They've still been active, but the volume has probably been slightly lower. What's interesting, though, is almost all of the largest deals have been led by strategic M&A buyers. So, for example, Thermo Fisher, Microsoft, some of the really big names in the industry, they're out there able to write a really big check. Susie, thanks for all that great information. I imagine if we turn our attention now towards the process or mechanics of doing a healthcare transaction, healthcare transactions likely have some special issues, particularly as it comes to due diligence, what types of information documents that buyers would expect to have, and sellers may need this information because they're looking for or anticipating a transaction and trying to make sure that all their documents are in place and that they have the information that buyers will want. Right. There are a number of unique issues for due diligence. And I also want to mention, after I go through a couple of those, just the prevalence and increase of the use of rep and warranty insurance in the M&A healthcare sector. So you've got some of the typical things you might think about. You've got the anti-kickback laws, Stark Law, 
those are laws, one criminal, one not criminal, but strict liability that really limit the ability to either make referrals or provide rewards for referrals, particularly in the context of services that are going to be reimbursed by federal health care plans. So any buyer is going to want to make sure that your record is squeaky clean. And another just general area is just an overall compliance review. So as you can imagine, licensing, registration, particularly if you're in the healthcare provider space, you know, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, all the, the licensed and registered healthcare professionals, are they in good standing? Are there disciplinary proceedings? And then morphing a little over to the manufacturing sector, you know, how about the FDA? Are there approvals? Are there processes? And even IP to some extent. I don't know that that's necessarily unique about healthcare, but certainly the FDA component of it from a regulatory point of view is. And another area that's interesting in healthcare is just the profit, nonprofit tax issues that might come up. Particularly when it comes to the healthcare providers, there are a lot of tax exempt healthcare providers. So think about, I mean, some hospitals are nonprofit, some are profit. There are a lot of related tax planning that's got to be reviewed, compliance matters that would have to be reviewed. You know, sometimes we're seeing, as opposed to traditional M&A, we'll see affiliations between healthcare institutions, health systems. This, to me, is just M&A. It's got a different name. So there's going to have to be a fair amount of analysis, particularly if you're going to be crossing over from profit to nonprofit and dealing with some of the consequences of that. Another area is just the whole corporate practice of medicine. There has been such huge interest in physician practices and the consolidation of those practices. So you can get efficiency in the practice management tools and the doctors just get to practice medicine. Since practice of medicine is regulated on a state-by-state basis, you really have to go through an analysis of what am I permitted to do in each of the states that my target operates in and how do I structure that? I mean, there are ways to structure this to reach the intended outcome, but it's not going to be necessarily the exact same from deal to deal. So that's a unique area, understanding how that's going to work and how it's been handled in the past. And then just the last couple of a few areas, a lot of antitrust interest. The FTC and the Department of Justice have been keenly interested in the arrangements made to segregate markets within healthcare delivery. So for example, non-solicitations. I'll buy your unit in city Y, you won't solicit my employees, I won't solicit your employees at other locations. What the FTC and DOJ have come out is they've come out to say that, you know, they view that as potentially anti-competitive. And so I think there's a lot of interest in what sorts of arrangements a target might have in place. And then also not exactly due diligence, but on a go-forward basis, what can we do for the period post-closing? So that's a big area that's attracting a lot of attention. A couple other areas you know, obviously privacy and data security. I mean, inherently, many of the healthcare sectors are dealing with personally identifiable information, PII, making sure that that's been handled properly. There haven't been any unauthorized releases. How secure are the systems? What does the data security look like? Have you been subjected to any ransomware or incursions? How did you deal with them? Does it look like any data was taken? So that's a big area for due diligence. And even the old school TCPA, that's the old Telephone Consumer Protection Act of 91. That can be an area of unique due diligence because if you think about marketing to healthcare professionals in particular, 
particularly coming from, you know, the pharma industry, the ability to approach them, to send them unsolicited emails. I mean, we're not doing the phone calls and facsimiles too much nowadays, but really uh, from an email point of view, there are a lot of class actions out there that are based on TCPA. So understanding how you've managed your mailing list, have you been diligent in, you know, letting people opt out and observing their wishes. I see a lot of due diligence around that area. And Adam, one of the reasons you need a fair amount of due diligence, obviously you need the due diligence to you know, make yourself as a buyer comfortable that this is a solid target, it's well-priced, you're not taking on any unknown risks. But one of the other reasons is just in M&A generally, we're seeing a vastly increased use of rep and warranty insurance. This is insurance that buyers will procure from an, an insurance underwriter to cover any post-closing liability that comes from breach of a rep or warranty that's made by a seller in the course of an M&A transaction. And one of the predicates to getting a good solid rep and warranty policy without a lot of exclusions is you really got to have extensive rock solid due diligence and reporting. And so we're seeing that in healthcare M&A in particular, the use of a lot of outside consultants creating the sorts of reports and the ability to answer questions that these very sophisticated insurance carriers have. So I would think that the whole, what I'll call due diligence industry in healthcare M&A is only likely to increase in the coming years. Thanks, Susie. This has been a fantastic discussion and a really valuable update on everything going on in this area. If you had to boil this down into a couple of key takeaways, what would you say to our listeners? I think we should continue to look for pretty substantial increase in volume, both in number of deals and dollar volume. And I think that's going to be driven by two factors. One of them is just the general interest in the healthcare industry and the growth of that industry generally. But I think it's also driven by the increasing comfort level that private equity buyers have taking on healthcare M&A. They're going to be a strong force and activity in the coming years. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of SciFarth's Healthcare Beat podcast, bringing you the latest developments and pressing issues in healthcare. So you'll never miss an episode, be sure to visit SciFarth.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We look forward to having you with us again soon.